This is the Pain Information Network, 52. Today I'm with Dr. Sanford Silverman, and he's been on before. He's a wealth of information, a really good speaker. And we're at the Georgia Society of Interventional Pain Physicians meeting. We're talking about what we talk about, and that drugs and uh, the other aspects of interventional pain medicine and just pain medicine in general. Today, Dr. Silverman gets me two podcasts. He was very generous with this time, and I want to talk a little bit about marijuana. You folks have been sending in some great comments, um, going through every one of them, and, you know, real touching stories. I want you to know I'm thinking of you, thinking of every one of you. So we need another Q&A, and I'm going to do that. But, uh, of course, everything's confidential. I would appreciate anybody and everybody to go to iTunes and leave a review. It's starting to help us rank, and other people can find us, which is really important. Today's topic's marijuana, because that just keeps coming up. Marijuana keeps coming up, and Dr. Silverman is a great speaker on marijuana. And uh, from southern Florida, he's been in the bullseye of the controlled substance management problem, the opioid epidemic, if you will. And he was instrumental in really helping change the turf down there. So it's not the number one place in America for oxycodone anymore, and he was instrumental in probably saving many, many lives. So let's talk a little bit about marijuana and let's get to it. In Florida, we were reeling from our opioid epidemic, which is pretty prevalent in the United States, but it started in Florida and it was much worse in Florida. So we dealt with that with legislation and physician and patient education. But then medical marijuana came around, and the legislature said, you know, we don't want an epidemic of, of marijuana in the state because we're just dealing with this opioid stuff. So they really had to look at this very carefully. So bottom line, in, in the state of Florida, there is a medical marijuana law that allows high cannabidiol, or CBD, high CBD marijuana, and low tetrahydrocannabinol or THC marijuana. Now, THC is the active component, is the euphorogenic component of marijuana. That's what people enjoy when they smoke. It makes them high. Okay? It also it also is an addictive substance, marijuana. That's been demonstrated, particularly if you're less than 18 years old. But in medical marijuana, in the state of Florida, it's really not an issue because there's so little THC allowed, it's not going to be something that people are going to abuse or really want. So that was passed. You can't smoke it. You can use oils. You can use edibles. Uh, but you can't combust it. Uh, having said that, that was passed about three years ago, and it's still not even available because the state hasn't figured out the regulatory and distribution system. Now, when you talk about medical marijuana, you really need to be speaking about medical cannabinoids. You've got to not look at the herb, but you got to look what's inside the herb. And marijuana is like a salad. It's got tomatoes, lettuce, onions, cucumbers, radishes. And some of those things might be really good, and some of them may not be good at all or just neutral. So what's in the marijuana is really what we want to study. And that brings us to the studies of marijuana. And there haven't been a lot of good controlled studies that we expect in the medical community, and actually the public expects it too. When the public gets a drug to treat a medical illness, they expect that it's safe and efficacious. That's They demand it. And there's a process to do that. So the medical marijuana process completely 
uh, bypasses that. It says this just allow a plant or an extract of a plant to be used to treat epilepsy, medical muscles, um, painful muscle spasms, okay, uh, chronic pain or terminal illness. Okay. Now, having said that, there is data out there that shows it could be effective. Okay. It needs to be studied more. We need to really look at it much closer. But you also have to realize that there's politics involved in this and that medical marijuana laws, at least the people that support them initially, um, may have true medical problems and it may be helping them. But the real political movement and the money behind it is for legalization of marijuana, period. There are billions of dollars to be made and there are billions of dollars behind these movements. So really what we're going to see in this country is medical marijuana and then legalization for recreational use, just like we saw in Colorado. I am not for the legalization of marijuana because I think we have enough drugs and enough euphorogenic substances to change people's attitudes. I think we need to be backing away from them. But medical mar- medical cannabis, I should say, medical cannabis, I think there's something to it. We need to look at it closer, and we need to isolate what works and figure it out. Well, you're right, and some neurobiologists have actually identified a pain relief component to marijuana, but it's specific to certain receptors, and it's specific to certain preparations. It's not just smoking a cloud, uh, walking around with a little green card that says, I have a problem, I need my marijuana. It's much more complicated than that. It has to do with legitimate diagnosis for a legitimate reason, and we use this drug like anything else. We use this drug to to improve uh, quality of life. We've got to demonstrate that, and there is a process, and it's been leapfrogged. You're right, it's political, and when I hear some high-end political people just pandering to people, I'm thinking, is this about votes, or is this about really doing something with a drug that can help people? I think it's about money. That's what it's about. It's about money, money, money. So look at my practice. I treat chronic pain. I treat people who are suffering. Sometimes we use opioid pain medication. People say, oh, my God, you're going to make these people addicted and kill them. And that is clearly not what we do. Being an addiction management doctor as well, I know how to use opioids. I don't use high doses of them. I use them as a they're a component in therapy. They're not the only thing that we use. So let's say we have a patient who is using a moderately low dose or moderate dose of opioid along with other techniques and functioning. Now they say, well, I need my marijuana too because it makes me, it helps me, makes me feel good. There's a problem with that, okay? Because when we know when you consume marijuana, not just cannabidiol, but marijuana, it creates an amotivational state. It is euphorogenic. You won't see professional athletes smoking a joint before they go out on the football field or the basketball court. It affects motor skills. It affects short-term and working memory, etc. Now, having said that, I give patients a choice. Let me, let me just back up one thing. Do not smoke marijuana. If you, if you are managing a medical condition, you should use a vaporizer or you should use an oil or you should eat it because smoking anything, including banana peels, is bad. Any combustible, anything that burns and goes into your lungs is bad, and that includes marijuana. So really, the people who are 
you are inhaling it or using vaporizers, which is better. So I give these patients a choice. I said, listen, I'm not going to tell you it doesn't help you. That's great. But you can't tell me that you need both of these medicines to help you. So I have them take a choice. You make the choice. You make the choice. If you want to consume cannabis by whatever means, hopefully you don't smoke it, I have no problem. I'll still see you in my practice. But I will not prescribe opioids or other controlled substances that have an additive effect and unfortunately are also also add to a Schedule 1 drug. Marijuana is still a Schedule 1 drug, and physicians have to be careful because their licenses are in jeopardy. If anything bad befalls a patient who is consuming cannabis, which is a Schedule 1 drug, and you are writing an opioid, which is another Schedule drug, Anything bad befalls that patient, that doctor is basically gone. He's dead. His DEA license is gone, and he is gone. And so you have to realize from the physician point of view, this is a really big deal. Now, if the government decides to reschedule cannabis to a Schedule 2, now it has legitimate medical use. Now we can meter it, we can study it, and we can say, I can give you this much cannabis and this much other medicine to treat you. But right now I can't do that. That's right. Just to let people know what scheduling means, schedule, schedule one okay. has no legitimate medical need right. or purpose. Schedule two, there's a clinical application. People are surprised when I say, well, cocaine, I can, I can use cocaine. What do you mean you can use cocaine? It's a schedule two drug. It does have use. It's a local anesthetic. Marijuana is not. And I don't care what Colorado does. Marijuana, as seen by the federal eyes, is still schedule one. Physicians have to be very, very careful. And, okay, let's uh, let's take it a little further. So the next thing we're going to do is we're going to look at some of these folks that have terrible diseases or debilitating problems, and they're going to say, i I, I, I got to do anything. I'm desperate. What do you do with desperation? Well, uh, you have to figure out why they're desperate. Are they emotionally destroyed is there a psychiatric component is there a physical component is it both is it neither and it takes time to figure that out but medicating symptoms never really works long term exactly you can take somebody who is extremely anxious and has pain and has all sorts of other financial issues maybe spousal issues and take a drug like xanax and they're going to feel better they're going to feel much better they might actually be able to accomplish something short-term because they're not as anxious. But long-term, what are you doing? You're simply medicating symptoms. You're medicating symptoms, okay? Um, now, when we use opioids and chronic pain, some people would say, well, you're medicating symptoms too. But we reserve opioids for end-stage pain. We don't give it. We don't medicate people chronically who just have, quote, low back pain. We, we manage that differently. But what about a patient who's had back surgery five times? What about a patient who has nerve damage from that back surgery? What about a patient who, who really is limping and has bona fide functional pain? Opioids, as part of a comprehensive package, could be effective. And I would submit to you that maybe cannabinoids could as well. I have patients. I can think of one patient in my practice. A very nice lady who had back surgery, and she had an implant put in. This is before she saw me. I called the stimulator, spinal cord stimulator, and she was put on morphine. And she came to the practice, and she was absolutely miserable. She says, I want to get off this stuff. I hate it. I don't feel good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we helped her. We weaned her off the morphine. 
We used some other medicines, some other adjuncts, but she consumes cannabinoids. And she says, this helps me sleep, this helps my pain. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Okay? That's what she wants to do. That's fine. Because it helps her. I'm not going to tell people it's not going to help you. Now, in the, in the medical world, you can prescribe THC. It's called Marinol or Dronabinol. Okay? It's concentrated THC. That's the active euphoric ingredient in marijuana and cannabis. It's in a tablet form. And it is FDA approved to treat anorexia, which is not wanting to eat, and weight loss and protracted nausea and vomiting. You often see this in chronically debilitated patients such as cancer patients, severe HIV wasting, or severe end-stage chronic illness. I have prescribed that medicine, and it's helpful. The problem is it's expensive. So in that aspect, THC has been found to be effective. All right. Tell us about FA, which is a long, long way to go. FA, which is fatty acid amide hydrolase. It's an enzyme in your body, FAAH, FA. And it breaks down a chemical that we all make called anandamide. It's an endogenous cannabinoid. What the heck does that mean? Okay. So we make cannabinoids. We make sort of similar ingredients that are seen in cannabis. We make them naturally. We also make endogenous opioids. And cannabinoids are important because they are neuromodulators. They work with neurotransmitters, and they help our central nervous system develop. We need cannabinoids. We don't need THC and exogenous stuff, but we need to make them. So we're all producing these chemicals that we need called, and one of them is called anandamide, and it is broken down or hydrolyzed by fa. Okay. And there have been studies show that you can breed mice that don't have fa, and they have extra high levels of amandamide, and they have increased pain thresholds. In other words, they can tolerate pain more than animals who have fa, which is interesting. So it seems that anandamide which is a which is an endogenous cannabinoid which is broken down by fa theoretically anyway if we give a medicine to inhibit fa we'll have more amandamide and we might have improvement in pain sidebar to the discussion so pharmaceutical companies may be looking at fa inhibitors that's great. What else can you Anandamide, tell me about? Anandamide, excuse me. Anandamide. Anandamide. Okay. All right, what else it's can you It's early in the about? morning, sorry. Yeah, I know. Well, we, it's pretty organic, too. We're sitting outside. Uh, what you've heard so far is a motorboat. You've heard a lawnmower, and you've heard other people around us, and you hear the music overhead. That doesn't matter. I mean, we've got the intellectual property right here with uh, Sanford Silverman. We'll take more. We can get them. Anything else we want to close it out with? I think that, that patients who have chronic pain problems or chronic sufferers, I understand where they come from. I mean, I just went through back surgery, and I had three months of hell, and I, and I was desperate. And I had back surgery, and it fixed it. I tried a lot of other things. I tried the things that I give my own patients, but it didn't, it didn't particularly help me. And I had, an un, I had a particular situation where I had a fragment of a disc that was broken off, was stuck into a nerve root. That had to be taken out. But you have to understand that when you present to a pain clinic and you're suffering and you're using painkillers like hydrocodone and oxycodone and you say, yeah, they help me, they help me work, 
you really need to sit down and think about how they're working and that maybe you're using a little bit more than you used to and they didn't work as well as they used to and you're developing tolerance. This is not a sustainable benefit for you. And to go to the pain doctor and say, I need my pain medicine, please give it to me so I can leave and go on, is not a long-term solution. And that physician is not going to want to do it. So don't get too angry with them. It's not that he doesn't want to treat you. It's that he or she may have a much better long-term benefit plan for you. That's awesome. All right. Well, we appreciate you having us sit down and pick your brain, although you're a marijuana expert and an addiction expert and a pain expert. That's an incredible brushstroke to have as an experienced provider. You really know where these people are going, what's in their best interest. Thanks again. You're welcome, Hans. Thank you, Dr. Silverman. It was really good. And I know it's some valuable information for people. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to visit us at paininformation.com. This is an informational network. It is not recommending medical treatments or advice. It's just here for you. And those questions will be answered. Let's get them in for a Q&A. And I hope to uh, at least uh, get you some value for your time and appreciate every second you're with us. Thanks again.